Liar, lunatic, Lord. Which of these is Jesus? He can only be one of these three things. That's what the author C.S. Lewis wrote back almost 70 years ago. He wrote that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. According to C.S. Lewis, these are the three options. Liar, lunatic, Lord. What do you think about that? You might not 100% agree with him, but it's clear that it matters here who you think that Jesus is. Back 70 years ago, when when C.S. Lewis wrote that, there, there were a whole bunch of people going around claiming that Jesus was just a great moral teacher. Lots of great lessons, that sort of stuff. But Jesus can't have been just that. He is either far less or much more. And so tonight in Mark 3, we we actually see three groups of people who see Jesus in these same three categories that C.S. Lewis saw. They see the remarkable power that Jesus has, the claims that he's making, and then respond to him as such. We have the demons who call him Lord. We have the teachers of the law who call him a liar. And we have Jesus' own family who call him a lunatic. Tonight, as we look at each of these claims about who Jesus is, we're going to see just how important it is to get Jesus right. When we see Jesus' power, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand who he is. So before we get into the claims, we're going to pray. But if for any reason you feel that it might be helpful for you to have a copy of the transcript, um, put your hand up when we pray and someone will come and bring one to you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Please help us tonight as we listen to it. Help us to hear and learn exactly what you want us to. Help us to have ears to hear the good news of your Son. Amen. Well, let's start with the first claim. Is Jesus Lord? Well, that's what the demons say. Let's read from verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, 
they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Let's zoom in there on the demons. Lots of stuff is going on, but what's important is to to hear what the demons are saying. You are the Son of God, they're crying out. The Son of God. That's a big claim. Where have you heard that before? Well, Mark started the whole book with it back in chapter 1, verse 1. He said, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We know that Mark thinks that the demons are correct. But who is this Son of God? What are the demons meaning when they say that this is the Son of God? Well, firstly, it's a relational term. The Son of God. It's a very special kind of relationship, a familial one. So if if Jesus is the Son of God, then he's not just been sent by God or chosen by God, but he's actually a member of God's own family. But the title is used in two other key ways in the Old Testament that might help us to figure it out. The first is that Israel is called God's son. And the second is that the kings are called God's son. Firstly, Israel. Being God's son was the type of relationship that Israel, God's own chosen people, were meant to have with him. That same close relationship. And so if Jesus is the son of God, then he's almost the the representative, the, the culmination of God's chosen people. And then secondly, the king. The king is in a whole bunch of places referred to as the Son of God. One of those places is in Psalm 2, which was read out. Here it is on the screen. It's, you are my son. It's a title that God places on his chosen anointed kings, such as King David, to give them his authority on earth. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he is God's chosen king. And God's chosen king is given power and authority as Lord of all. And so knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed king, the Lord, suddenly makes Jesus' power in this passage make a lot of sense. First with the demons. The demons are calling Jesus the Son of God. And it's this great picture here of whenever The impure spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out. It's not just one demon that's coming over, but every time a demon steps up to the plate to fight Jesus, they end up bowing down before him, bowing down before the king. There's a spiritual war going on here, but the battle is not even close. Then we have the crowds who come from everywhere, just to get close to Jesus, so desperate to even touch him because they know how powerful he is. And if you remember from our sermon in Mark 1 a few weeks ago, the key reasons for Jesus' healings are his compassion, him proving that he is God's king, and him teaching about what his kingdom is like. The crowds are gathering around the compassionate king. 
Now, do the crowds get who Jesus is? I think to me it looks more like they're, they're interested in what he can give them in terms of miracles and healings than them recognizing that Jesus is Lord. And yet they keep coming, like people gathering around their leader. And then straight after Jesus' time with the crowds and the demons, he goes off with his disciples. And with his authority as Lord, he appoints those who will represent him by sending them out to do the very things that he's been doing, preaching and driving out demons. Preaching the good news of the kingdom, that the king has come. And driving out demons in the name of the king, whose authority reaches even into the spiritual world. Now, before we move on, I think it's actually really ironic here that the one group that actually gets Jesus' identity right is the demons. Everyone else sees Jesus' power and completely misunderstands who he is. But the demons are the ones who cry out the truth. Isn't it clear that to follow Jesus actually requires more than just a knowledge of the truth or or proof that God is real or anything like that? But it's actually living with Jesus as your king. It's not enough to just know who Jesus is. It wasn't enough for the demons and it's not enough for us either. Knowledge isn't what saves us. We can't live like he's, you know, hashtag not my Lord. Put your life into Jesus' hands, into the hands of our Lord, our Savior. He won't let you go. You are safe in his hands. So is Jesus Lord? Well, he's definitely claiming to be here. And yet it would make a lot of sense of the things that are going on in the passage. But I guess it's not the only possibility. And we know that for a few reasons. Firstly, or because in our world, there are lots of people who've heard the things that heard about the things that Jesus has done and, and seen a bunch of stuff, and yet they don't say that he's Lord. And maybe one of your friends thinks that. Or, or maybe you think that. Maybe you've heard some of the stories and yet you don't believe. But second, because in our passage today, there are people who heard with their own ears and saw with their own eyes some of the things that Jesus said and did. And yet they didn't say that Jesus is Lord either. We have two groups. We have the teachers of the law who call Jesus a liar. And we have Jesus' own family who call him a lunatic. Well, is Jesus a liar? Let's start with there. The teachers of the law, they certainly think so. Let's read from verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. 
The claim of the teachers of the law is that Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. They say that he's using the power of Satan himself to cast out demons. Now, this is one of the the almost logical possibilities of who Jesus could actually be. Because if Jesus is not Lord, if he's not the Son of God, and he knows it, then he is truly evil. This is the Jesus who's spent all of Mark so far walking around, preaching to to people about this good news, healing people, telling people that their sins are forgiven. This is the Jesus who makes numerous promises of eternal life by believing in him. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then he is truly evil. But so the teachers of the law, they're saying that, no, he doesn't have the power of God. He has the power of Satan. And Jesus says, no, your argument, it doesn't make sense at all. How can Satan drive out Satan? Or potentially another question, why would Satan drive out Satan? Why would Satan actively decrease his hold and power in this world? Imagine being a worker at a building site, maybe even the building site right next to us. We've seen how quickly it's gone up. Imagine while everyone is at work, they're working, putting the building up. You're moving some bricks over, you're putting some nails in the wall, you're making some concrete. Imagine that the foreman has just hired someone to do the exact opposite. He has hired someone to knock down walls and uh, move bricks back. No builder would hire these two people to do the opposite tasks. Jesus is saying, your argument, it makes no sense. The teachers of the law have completely misunderstood who Jesus is. They've misunderstood Jesus' remarkable power because they've misunderstood who he is. He's not Satan's friend, he's Satan's enemy. Satan, the the accuser, the prince of this world, he's like a strong man here who's built up all of these possessions. And what are these possessions? It's people who've been enslaved to sin and darkness. It's you and me left alone in our sin. Helpless, alone, without hope, trapped living as if we are free when we know that it is actually slavery to our own desires, slavery to sin. But what's Jesus going to do here? Well, his plan is to defeat Satan, tie him up and take all that he has. How can you defeat a strong man? Well, you need a stronger man. Do you ever feel helpless under the weight of your sin? Do you ever feel trapped in it? If you do, I, I can assure you that you're not alone in this. And I, I think if we all answered honestly, that there are times where we all feel like that. I know I certainly have. But the good news is that Jesus is the stronger man. 
He's going to enter Satan's house, defeat him in battle, tie him up and take back all the people who've been enslaved. Jesus is the powerful Lord of this whole world who does not leave people lost and helpless under the rule of Satan and this world. So something we have to realize is that calling Jesus a liar, it's very dangerous. Verse 28 and 29. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Getting Jesus right is huge, and the consequences are eternal. It might be helpful for us to, to actually pause here and think about this eternal sin. What's actually going on here? Like sometimes one of the key reasons that we have trouble figuring out what's, what the Bible is talking about is that we, we rip a verse out of context and expect it to just make sense on its own. Because when you read the next verse here, what Jesus is talking about actually makes sense. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus has been going around doing all of these miracles by the power of God. We know that from his baptism, where he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. All of Jesus' works have been God's works. And now these teachers of the law are saying that Jesus is doing them by the power of Satan, of the evil one. They're calling God evil. And that is not a small thing. Do you get how massive that is? But it doesn't seem here like this is just a, a once-in-your-out kind of thing because Jesus is clearly warning the teachers of the law here. If you continue to say that the work of God is actually the work of Satan, if you continue to say that God is evil, then this will lead to your end. It's a way of life, living in rebellion against God's rule. But why is this eternal? You know, I know I've had a lot of friends come up to me over the years and say, well, it's, it's not fair that God can punish people forever for something that they just did in this life. Well, I think we know that the consequences of our actions, they don't just line up with the actions themselves, but who they were done against. When we rebel, when we sin against an eternal, infinite God, the consequences are, well, eternal. Sin has eternal consequences because of who it is against. That's how serious this is. Now, while it's really good to think about and see the seriousness of sin, we completely skipped over verse 28 here. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Forgiveness is on offer. Hear the offer of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel and you'll be forgiven. The death that Jesus died in our place, that is what has earned our forgiveness forever. And that is what we can trust in. Forgiveness is on offer. Do you see how good that is? 
Free forgiveness, and it's on offer for you. See Jesus as Lord, turn to him and be forgiven. That's what Jesus is on about. He is the Lord of forgiveness. Trust in the strong man who can set you free. He won't let you down. But we do have a third option of who Jesus could be. And that, of course, is a lunatic. Because maybe Jesus isn't lying about all these things, but is just crazy. Maybe what he actually needs is just some serious help. We shouldn't be allowing him to continue in his delusion. You know, someone's got to care for him, get him some help. And this is clearly what Jesus' family are thinking. You know, have a look at verse 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Jesus' family hear about everything that's going on and go, Oh, we need to bring him in. We can't just let him continue in his delusions. We have to do something about it. They're trying to, to be loving to him. But the problem is they've missed the point. They don't understand who Jesus is. But Jesus is having none of it. Verses 31 to 35 here. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' family misunderstood who he he is and so are left on the outside looking in. And while those on the inside, those, those who've drawn close to him, who listen to him, They are brought into Jesus' new family. A family not related to each other by a family bloodline, but by the blood of Christ. And if you're a Christian, then that's the family that you've been brought into. By what Jesus has done, by him going to the cross and suffering in our place, bearing our sin, we haven't just been forgiven, but we've been given a new family. The Son of God has made us children of God. He's a part of the family and has brought us into it. We are God's children. Do you get how huge that is? The God of the whole universe is your dad. The sort of father whose love for you overflows. That's the family that you've been brought into. We don't deserve to be members of it. We haven't done anything to earn the invitation ourselves. But God has brought us in anyway. God has invited you to be a part of his family. He has washed you, cleansed you by the blood of Jesus. So come in. God is welcoming you home. Recognize that Jesus is the Lord, the King. Forgiveness is on offer. 
forgiveness and membership in God's own family. Liar, lunatic, Lord. Which of these do you see Jesus as? Maybe you've come up with another category that fits where you're at, you know, one that C.S. Lewis didn't think of. But clearly here, knowing who Jesus is, it really matters. If Jesus is Lord, then he must be what our lives are all about. He needs to be the center of our lives because he is the center of the whole universe. The cost of getting Jesus wrong, of misunderstanding who he is, the consequences, they're not small. In fact, the consequences are eternal. But if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's the Lord who, who brings forgiveness and new life and entrance into God's family, then he is worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus. In him is forgiveness. In him is an invitation into your family. Father, help us to see Jesus for who he is. Help us to know that Jesus is Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.